Is the United States going to war with crypto or are they actually taking sensible steps to protect consumers? Also, what things are being built in Web3 that we should be excited about and how will those tools eventually lead to mainstream adoption? I talked with one of my favorite guests today, Lex Soklin, about all of this. You don't want to miss it. That's dope. Yeah, we can also do 10 minutes. Yeah, just uh, three minutes. No more staking. We're all, we're all done. There's no more staking anymore. Now it's just yeah. uh, we hand crank it, you know. Conversation just... finished. So uh, thank you guys for listening. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about staking. Uh, obviously, that's the hot topic at the moment. Kraken seemingly quickly settled with the SEC $30 million and has decided to disallow staking for U.S. customers. What's going on here? You know, I, th I think um, there was this moment, right, coming out of the financial liquidations last year where it, it became really clear that centralized exchanges could uh, disappear with your money. And um, not just one. Uh, but multiple companies did that. And, you know, from FDX to Celsius to um, lots of good names as well. Um, and so that risk of bankruptcy, uh, which is really just credit risk, is fuel for regulators to come in and point to it and say, we can't have this happen again, right? We, those consumer protection, um, we've got to make sure that, um, if people are investing into something and putting money into something, then that something is well described, is registered, there's recourse, there's insurance and so on and so forth. I think that can get taken too far or that can get taken to apply to, to products, sometimes technology products, not necessarily like financial instruments that, um, you're, you're using the excuse of what has happened prior and applying it to situations that don't quite match. But if I understand what's going on with Kraken, um, it, it is, it's, it's not dire for the crypto industry. It's not dire for, um, staking or for protocols as a whole. What it, if you really kind of narrow the scope of what's going on, it's about a centralized exchange that is offering, um, a, a yield generating product that's backed by uh, staking and various networks. And so you are you are doing this motion of giving somebody your money, right? Somebody is taking your money uh, in a custodial manner and they are you're relying on them and so there's credit risk involved. Um, so I can see why the SEC kind of went after the target. Um, it's it's pretty narrow. Um, I can see why you wouldn't want wouldn't want like, industry-wide statements relating to staking out of it because there's many more much more you know hairy complex issues um that probably neither the sec nor kraken or anybody else really wants to put on display right now and so i th i think um it is really challenging for custodial institutions that um do have the structure but again not all custodial institutions have this financial instrument structure either right so the argument there, once again, boils down to CFI versus DeFi. Although this isn't as gratuitous as a Voyager BlockFi Celsius that was literally structured to just take your money and go take risk and earn yield. But this is a transactional 
thing where you're giving them your money, they're doing something that you may not know exactly what it is and making money and therefore it applies to the same framework. Yeah. So like we can have a bunch of toy examples here, right? Like um, you could have, and, and by the way, I'm not coming out and saying that the process by which the SEC has done this is fantastic and fruitful, we're, right? Like we're going to talk coming about out, <laughs> Yeah. Coming out with enforcements and, and just, um, you know, shooting, shooting companies in the back of the head, um, isn't maybe isn't the best way to go about it. Like maybe saying here's the right way to do it. And, um, also acknowledging that legislation from 90 years ago from the investment securities acts, like maybe 90 years ago, you did not have science fiction networks running metaverse architecture with, you know, attention glued to, uh, internet money. Like maybe that wasn't there. And so potentially you might want to have sort of, um, rulemaking that's appropriate to the asset class that you're, that, that you're making these rules about, but putting all that aside, like, you can imagine um, a crypto exchange that says, come here, we'll do staking for you. You give us your money and we'll give you 20%. You know, And in one example, that exchange is literally just opening accounts on your behalf and kind of pass through into the validator. And then you're getting the rewards and the technology is like a thin layer to make that easy for you from a UX perspective. Um, or you can imagine the same example, except the crypto exchange is levering up 10 times because staking will never fail um and yolo right and also buying some houses um because it's it's hard work levering up um you gotta you gotta feel grounded in your in your real estate ownership i guess and then um he's talking know, about ftx people <laughs> continue <laughs> yeah i don't think it's just ftx i think you know but Maybe there's a boat involved. I don't know. Maybe you created antivirus. Uh, He's talking software. about three AC guys. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's lots of there's lots of good there's good people on both sides. Um, <laughs> so the point being is like knowing what you're doing, knowing if you're actually staking into a network, or knowing that, or or maybe that's just marketing copy, and what you're doing is you're financing some crazy structured product with exposure that you don't understand and the marketing person describing it doesn't understand then that's a completely different environment right the different different sort of situation and we don't want to be in that situation we don't want to roll the dice on whether this crypto exchange is a good actor or a bad actor because we've rolled the dice enough to know that you know probably probably don't trust them right um the thing is the solution to probably don't trust them is very obvious and it was invented in you know 2008 um and two th and and uh 2015 right like the the don't trust them problem is solved pretty well with trustless and non-custodial software so i i think there is a silver lining in it but um it's it's maybe you have to squint to get there I mean, the implication is that the silver lining is it pushes people towards DeFi and to participate in staking in the networks themselves directly. But are you concerned that this action and sort of the entire tone from regulators right now, the enforcement after the fact is a slippery slope towards also disallowing it for the individual? Yeah, I, I think the the second order effects are actually quite quite complicated and a bit hard to figure out. Um, I, we can speculate about them, right? But they are a bit hard to figure out. So I think as a general statement, like the, the more assets, the more capital that is there to secure proof of stake networks, 
the more secure the proof of stake networks. So, uh, you know, consensus as a Web3 company and more generally like crypto natives want there to be more capital securing um, Web3 networks. You know, an analogous statement would be something like um, after the 2008 crisis, the banks were so levered up and they had very low capital. And so the, the government had to come in and bail out their balance sheet because, um, you know, with TARP and, and buy up all their assets because there wasn't very much equity capital. So the regulatory response to that was banks should have more capital on their balance sheets in order for the financial system to be more secure. So generally speaking, we want more capital to secure financial systems. It, it seems to be a pretty good um, idea. Now, when you get to like, okay, well, who and how, right? There's there's kind of this balance for um, for blockchain networks where on the one hand, you want to make it really easy for people to have access. You want to and I apologize for the word democratize, but you want you want anyone, you know, with any amount to say, yeah, I I'm participating in the validation of this chain, whether or not I have 32 ETH, um, whether or not I have the technical know-how to run an like run a server farm in my basement. You know, I'm not precluded from actually participating in the benefits of securing this chain and being paid by the network for the use of my capital. Like that's sort of a unbanked question. Like you, you want people to have access to credit uh, or to banking services. You want people to have access to the internet. Um, I'm not going to say it's like a human rights issue that you should be able to like support your network of choice. But you know, in ten years, it might it might be equivalent to voting, um, and it might be um, sort of a right. So. But but the, on the the counter to that is it's actually fairly difficult for the average person to to go and do staking on their own. It's prohibitive, right? So um, that's the trade off. You want more people, but it's it's difficult to do it in a permissionless way. But then on the other hand, the flip side is the industry structure to make it really easy to stake right now is a custodial one right and so that's why you've got intermediaries popping up and there's always going to be a value chain there's always going to there's it, people will make things other people will make things easier for other people and be paid for it like that's just it's it's economies is how they work um and so intermediaries are popping up and saying look instead of having to do this thousand steps for which you're not qualified click this one button and we'll take care of that for you right and um the downside to that, even though it democratizes things, is that there's uh, counterparty and credit risk, you know, and we don't like that. That's one of the things that we're trying to get away from. Um, the The additional sort of complication is you make it really easy for lots of people to delegate um, <clears throat> their money into these custodial accounts, and then you end up with more centralization in the staking itself. So you end up with, you know, an industry structure where the pools of assets um, securing these these networks end up being really, really kind of cranked into an oligol uh, oligopoly where the, the concentration is really high with the large centralized exchanges. So there's always also kind of like one potential positive side effect is forcing 
a forcing function for a more decentralized like staking infrastructure or more people individually contributing rather than and, and that creates anti-fragility right so like kraken having to pull out of um securing all these networks is fragile it's like china turning off bitcoin mining it's fragile if you but if you spread it out over every country or you're spreading it out all over individuals running their own hardware um, or, or software then you get to a place that's the networks are a lot more resilient yeah you just spoke to the fact or to a problem that we've actually seen playing out in real time recently which is Andreessen Horowitz basically being a huge voting block and it's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. If they vote, it's basically centralized and they decide what the vote is. If they don't vote, they'll be criticized for not participating in the network. So how do yeah. you stop with proof of work systems, a centralized authority or a single actor from basically just accumulating so much of the asset that it effectively becomes centralized? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the nice thing about staking, you know, staking versus is, it's not quite DeFi in my mind because it's not, it's not like a DeFi protocol that's running on the computational network. Here you're at a lower level of the network. And so you're, you're securing the network that does the computation and you're, you're not really, you know, ETH stakers don't vote. Uh, they don't come together and make governance decisions to the protocol. And they, instead they, they all have the same experience that scales with their capital. Like they don't get preferential treatment when they're larger. Um, they, your return from staking versus, you know, crypto exchanges return from staking is going to be the same. Um, and that's good. The problem there is more, you know, being a bad actor, trying to own 50% of the network, um, trying to attack the network with your financial and economic power. Like, is that possible? And then, you know, if if you take the capacity out, is the network more fragile um, and and not as resistant to adversaries? You know, that's a kind of at the protocol level. I think to your other question about um, Andreessen exercising their vote, I think it's a it's a just it's a such a fascinating and weird. Um, again, right, ninety years ago, the Investment Securities Act. Um, it was, it was not going to be like, how can a venture capital firm, um, buy a bunch of tokens to vote in a, uh, technology network on the internet? Like, it's just, we, we've got to think about different rules for that. Um, but like, we can't blame a player in a system where the system is set up to be played in this particular way. Like if the whole point is you can vote with your money because you can acquire, you know, th things that you love, you buy a participation stake in, and then you can help move them along. And that's why you're excited about the space. And that's why you're growing it. Um, you can't really be mad when people actually exercise that right, because they just when they disagree with you, right, that that just doesn't work. I think the problem becomes when, you know, it's like, people love, people love Amazon until it destroys all the uh, businesses in their neighborhood, right? It's kind of the same thing, which is at first it's so great. And then it's, oh, but my, you know, or Starbucks destroying your coffee shop. Um, right. so if there's a, you know, a consistent record of 
clearly attempts to, you know, market manipulate or corner a market or change pricing or, you know, destroy competition, there's a whole body of law that relates to that. Like that's not new to Andreessen or clicking buttons on the internet. That's just um, sort of in market industry structure. And you go back to Teddy Roosevelt and the trust busting, right? Because there were companies that had enormous industry power to shape things. You know, JP Morgan had industry power to shape the entire country. It's not an, you know, Andreessen shaping if you're buying a board ape. Um, sort of the implications were even even more profound. No offense, please, to anyone who um I'm I'm gonna hide now from uh from Yuga Labs, but the, meant, the point being pudgy penguins, guys. He meant pudgy penguins. I said nothing at all. Nothing happened. You know, the the point being is like, yeah. Now we're sort of applying this like monopoly power to fairly um, to fairly niche things, and and I think there's probably a moment when it becomes really dangerous. But at this stage, to me, it just looks like participation. Um, you know, the other thing I can say is. Um, like at consensus, we um, we have a governance practice that my team stood up, and it's actually like it's pretty awkward because consensus is at the center of the industry, uh, and so we know of people with different views, and and those people will reach out to us and say, "Hey, can you vote? I'm I'm I want to do this in Compound. I want to do this in Ave. I want to do this in Uniswap." Like. I'll give me vote for me and I'll vote for you and that kind of thing. And again, that's natural. That's politics. That's how that's the basic unit of politics. I'll do this for you. You do this for me. Um, and I'm pretty happy with how we've behaved and what we've done, which is literally a year ago in setting up this function, which is Dow governance function. Um, we set out a whole bunch of principles. Like we wrote down principles of literally like the four or five things that we cared about that we evaluated when we were going to make a vote. And so it's going to sound a little bit web three sort of frou-frou idealism, but it was, you know, decentralization. Does it push the technology forward? Is there going to be more competition? Is it more anti-fragile? Like, and we just vote according to those principles. We do our best to like stick to something objective because otherwise you're going to get caught in this trap of market power and political power sticking together. I mean, much of what you described is literally the core facet of a free market, right? Yep. I, I talk about it quite often with Bitcoin. People always say Bitcoin price is manipulated, but if that manipulation is simply because someone has more money than you and can drive the price in a certain direction, you as a participant in that market have the option to be on the right side of that trade, right? And so it's a very yeah. similar, I think, phenomenon. You can't have a free market without larger players being able to set the direction or tone of that market. Yeah, I think there's this is a, a great topic. Um, you know, and I think the example that sticks out to me, because the law here is so um it's so interesting. All of these things have happened a million times before, hundreds of years ago, you know, and so when you when you actually dig into like the case law, what you see is these like repeatable patterns of problems that people have about information, you know, and like what feels fair and to whom and why and so on. It, and, and um, you know, insider trading laws and all of that. Like, I think to the example of mango markets being um, 
um, let's let's use the word hacked, right? And so this dude is on Twitter, uh, being like, "I'm a sweet hacker." Um, is it Abraham Eisenberg? Is that right? Yeah, and I think he made yeah. the argument he's basically just a sweet trader, even more. Yeah, than yeah, a sweet no, no, hacker. no. He's like, yeah. he's like, I look. It's the rules. It's the rules of this protocol. Um, and so code is law. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna follow code as law. And if I can, whatever it is, flash, flash, borrow this much and play with this Oracle and that breaks the price of this option. And then, you know, I end up with 150 million, um, position in my account and your protocol's dead. I guess you're just like a bad developer and I'm a really great hacker and I will document this on Twitter because you know, I just want people to know how, how, how not to make mistakes. Um, of course that's also called market manipulation and the feds got them right for like literally for market manipulation, which is yeah. if you show up in the equities markets and you're like, I'm going to play around with the price, trying to trap people and trying to break, you know, various like positions based on the market structure that I know, um, you're manipulating the price and there's a reason for why this is bad. And the reason for why this is bad is because you're essentially fooling people into losing their money. Like they're not acting on um, commonly available information. So there's a like a level playing field concept in capitalism, in markets, um, you know, and when you, when you have a, um, a situation that's not a level playing field, it, it, you start and get to get pretty close to theft because you're, you're you're stealing people's assets by manipulating the environment in which they trade. And so I just I just thought it was like it was just such an insane moment, you know, after that mango um, uh, that that mango hack to to see that. I mean, I know it's not the hot topic of conversation here, but it's been blowing my mind left and right how many of these bad actors go out and lay their playbook out and their crimes out on Twitter publicly. It feels like their ego just has to be fed. I mean, SBF went on his little roadshow before being arrested and said, forget my lawyers, I don't care. I'm going to put all this garbage out on the internet. The three AC guys are obviously back the minute that uh, SBF blows up, along with the Celsius guy. I mean, it just feels like the egos are so big that they're willing to literally document their crimes in real time. Yeah, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance um, between the the actual impacts of the effect on markets has real impact on people's lives, right? Like. Um, we can't on the one side say this is going to be a financial liberation platform for uh, anyone who's willing to buy into the new future and on the other side um, generate capital losses for you know 40 percent of the participants was such that they're you know like I, I don't know on the crypto numbers but on the robin hood numbers for example um during the COVID pandemic robin hood had like incredible volumes and everybody day trading uh, GameStop and so on, on, um, on Robinhood and fighting the big fight against hedge funds made all this money. Um, within two years, like after the end of COVID, um, like on average, the, the average Robinhood trader had lost value. Like all of, all of the gains that people had made um, were gone and, and they were in the red. Right. And so, I think we just have to be kind of 
consistent and honest about what um what we're doing which is creating this new economic architecture and and not um create lots of financial businesses that end up walking away with your cash you sort of alluded to the fact that the kraken situation is a bit niche and it was a sort of a specific prod product against a specific exchange but it does feel to me like the attacks are increasing from multiple vectors at this point i mean silvergate bank yeah cash withdrawals from binance being halted custodia bank failing to get their fedmaster license it seems that all at once we're getting dinged basically left and right so again i i mentioned the slippery slippery slope but are you concerned right now that this is sort of a wholesale attack on the industry or do you think that this is all just reactionary to the collapses we saw last year? Hmm. It's that it's a difficult question. I think that you know, technology and innovation and progress is kind of like water. So it will it'll flow. It'll flow around any of the barriers that are going to be in its way. And if the end result is that the entire United States is a barrier, uh, it will flow around the United States, which is, you know patently insane because web3 is denominated in the dollar and meanwhile you know china and russia are trying to de-dollarize so and and then um chinese investment in artificial intelligence is like a national priority and so the one thing that we're like really winning on which is to build um a next generation digital infrastructure um th that is dollar based like we're also attacking um so it's that's that's a little bit it's a little bit funky but as it relates to like this feeling of the attack look i think that there's the story right like that defi summer some of us in crypto including me like it it's still amazing that worked that defi worked right because let's say you're a digital lending entrepreneur or you're like an exchange operator you know that's not a six-month build you know that's like um raise 50 million bucks and build it for two years and hope that works and so it was amazing to see DeFi click on and work and it was amazing to see the commerce coming out of the nft space and it's been incredible to see stable coins actually being used and plugging into the credit card networks right like so fast um but the the flip side of that is if it works there's actually something for the rule makers to react to like if there was if they weren't doing anything that means that crypto wasn't doing anything that it wasn't getting anything done right the only reaction before was to ICOs because that's what was done and the rest was just powerpoint decks now you've got performant protocols that are actually doing the things that they they say they they're doing um in a way that is fundamentally more efficient and more interesting and so on and so i think there's just like mana for to, to respond to something it's not some sort of conspiracy like people are just doing their jobs and um there are regulators in lots of different divisions who are full-time focused on understanding crypto assets and who have a really great grasp of what's going on and you know obviously looking at the sec right and you see Gary's position and you see Hester Pierce's position, right? It's the same. There's nothing wrong with the SEC. Like these are indiv individuals who have different positions, right? And, you know, Hester's position is very substantive. Um, and you, you can um, look at the OCC and it's the same story, actually. Um, it's really interesting what's happened with Custodia. 
right? So there was a period of time, I think about two years ago, when the acting commissioner of the OCC, which is the the bank, the federal bank regulator, um, was the former general counsel of Coinbase. And uh, he did some interesting things while running the OCC, which is he lit, he put out, I think, something like three different statements um, that were basically intended to allow federally chartered banks to hold stable coins as deposits. Um, you know, the the high level version of that was stable coins are money. Banks have always held money. Um, this is just a different technological infrastructure for holding money. Uh, henceforth, you know, any bank can uh, do stablecoin deposits and connect to blockchain networks. You know, and by the way, this is just a clarification because banks have always held money. We now have a different person in charge of the OCC, and the statements following and the clarifications as to like why custodia was denied, they are really quite they're very they're contortions. They're they're really quite something if you read them. And it goes something like when we said earlier that banks can hold stable coins is what we meant was that banks can try to hold them and then that will be subject to the customary review of the OCC um, fully in our discretion so you can go ahead and do it but then we on a one-by-one -one basis will tell you whether your risk management and so on um, uh, like systems are good enough and consistent with general bank risk management systems. And of course, it just so happens that anyone who touches crypto is somehow magically unable to create appropriate risk management systems, you know, even if they're Caitlin Long, um, who is probably one of the best people in the world at creating risk management systems for crypto and putting them inside of a bank. So look, this stuff is so individual and so contextual. It's It's not like an agency going after something. It really is political forces going back and forth. It's individual personalities pushing particular agendas, um, using experiences like the 2022 collapse to motivate things that are out of reach and so on. And so I think it's important to continue fighting for the principles that are important to us and like continuing to invest in government relations and and trying to create transparency in the industry. Such an indictment of politics and the current system, even outside of the way that they treat crypto. You can have a favorable ruling or law put in place, and then you just have to be scared that the next guy who comes in will flip them and they will not remain any longer. But we don't need to talk about that any further. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of, the, a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we've talked about a lot of the bad, the fears, the things that have been happening. Let's be optimistic and talk about the good. I mean, consensus obviously has a massive ecosystem. We know that historically the best products and ideas are built during the bear market, which we're obviously in. So what are you guys actually working on, looking at? What are you excited about for 2023 and moving forward that maybe people are missing because they're so focused on regulation or price being down? Yeah. Um, you know, I there there is the... I'll give you the product answer, kind of what we're doing, and then share like a, a thesis and, and a areas of focus that we're seeing growth in. Um, I think the first piece is just the continued tightening of the company on the places where the company is doing 
its best work. You know, so uh, Consensus started out as a venture studio um, and seeded lots of companies, and then it spent a lot of time trying to persuade enterprises and building enterprise Ethereum um, and exploring the market and kind of standing up this ecosystem. Um, and for the last few years, we've been much tighter around our product strategy. And especially going into this year, we've done kind of one more turn of focus. And so that focus um, falls into two things. The first is helping people actually use Web3. So that's MetaMask, um, making sure that um, anyone and corporations are people too. Um, anyone can come and connect to any protocol, use any part of Web3 that they want in a non-custodial manner. You know, if they need, uh, if they need to do it in a more compliant way, uh, from from like a institutional perspective, that's available. But really, going further with MetaMask as a wallet, and not just in terms of like, hey, can you make the user experience prettier and feel like Robinhood? Because of course we know that. Um, by the way, there's a button for portfolio dashboard. It's well designed. It's not in the. It's, it's one click past the extension. But we are we are doing stuff there, but it's also the developer side of MetaMask. So making sure that everywhere you go, it works. Um, and I think a lot of users, it's just it's you don't think about that, you don't care about that, you don't see it. But the fact that you can go on pretty much any Web three chain, but for you know a couple, and we've got paths to get there, um, that you can bridge to any chain, there's now bridging ability inside of the wallet, then you can stake on a bunch of the chains. Um, there, there's an aggregation of staking providers um, that you can move money between them through an aggregation of uh, token swapping. Um, and then developers can plug stuff into MetaMask on the other side. That's taking an enormous amount of um, development power. And it's testament to just how like complex and fragmented things have become you know it's like mev but on every chain with different data structures and so on and so forth so just getting people to be able to go on and use things is, is really important and then the other part is helping developers build things uh through infura so again using infura as a core platform for um permissionless innovation right so like powering every single version of a DeFi protocol powering multiple different chains uh, and nodes for multiple different chains um, and then moving towards decentralization of that architecture because we're also anxious um, about centralization issues in key key architecture and so we've got a bunch of projects going on on um, how do we um, create a network out of infura how do we open up um uh, you know, various sort of DAO or tokenization elements around MetaMask, like all of that stuff's in flight. Um, that's that's a bit of the pitch. I think in terms of what we're excited about or what's working going forward, like for me, I'm, I think the progress around the infrastructure of the protocols has been totally fantastic. Um, you know, I'm so used to not believing things will scale and to not believing that staking will be implemented and not believing that staking will, you know, unstaking will be implemented and not believing that there will be shards and all of this. But the, the practical reality is that the network is way more performant. There's lots of staking options, uh, lots of um, scaling options, 
right? Through um, Arbitrum and Optimism and so on. There is privacy being worked on through ZK proofs. Um, the Shanghai upgrade is really interesting, right? So like all of the things that people have struggled with are actually getting unblocked. Um, and I think, you know, this sort of like the multi-chain story is, is very powerful, but it seems to me that the best attributes of the different chains actually have a pretty good chance um, into being integrated into a coherent Web3 settlement layer, whether that's Ethereum or Ethereum plus other stuff or whether it's like a bridged version of things. But the fact that the architecture is coming together and it is um, now starting to get competitive with databases is really is really cool and great. Um, another place that um, I'm personally really excited about that I think we need to have is whatever you can frame as a web three economy, what, whatever you can tell yourself is an economy, right? And for me that the way I think about it is you've got people making things, you've got people coming to contribute labor into producing goods and services, but goods in particular. And so the labor is people coming to DAOs. That's they're spending time there. They're putting labor into, into small businesses, which are the DAOs. And then the digital objects that they make are everything from NFTs to experiences um, to memberships and so on. So I, I, the more tooling and actual kind of coherence and stability that we can have in a Web3 economy that's closed loop, that doesn't rely on us to get more people in and create, you know, circular token engineering loops. Um, the more we can have like actual GDP on chain, the better. Um, so that's number two. I'm a little hand wavy there, but I think, you know, you can point to the progress in like uh, NFT markets, in, in the resurgence of NFT projects, in the Yuga Labs game, um, you know, that they ran like, there, there's lots of cool stuff like that going on. And then number three, and I kind of hesitate, but given the macro, it's it's important. Number three is um, real world assets. And so there's there's been a lot of learnings as to what doesn't work. Um, security token offerings don't work. You know, nobody wants like Vietnamese private equity in the middle market tokenized on chain like nobody wants the you know the iphone cover supply chain risk like that's not the the thing but getting so it's not about taking kind of bad assets and putting them into the crypto market hoping people will buy them as an error um there's plenty of crypto native bad assets i think what it's about is taking you're welcome yeah that's yes, it's fine yes. it's fine it's fine um yeah so i think but i think you know like with the collapse of the leverage markets in web3 and you just you can look at compound or ave and the interest rates being close to zero right it's much it's actually that's actually really good for getting treasuries on chain for getting big fat interest rates um uh from large issuers like governments or big corporates um, 
and figuring out how do you get people exposure to you know the inevitable 5% interest rate that the American government's going to print on the dollar? How do you get that into crypto so that I can use my stable coins natively inside of the DeFi ecosystem and not have to go back out into the banking system, which also, by the way, doesn't support really um, treasury investment very well. So I think there's some real world assets that, that are good to try and pull in. Um, and kind of the key is that those assets have to be high quality and people actually want to own them, you know, and, and I bring up the, the treasury is one just because it's so, so clearly obvious that, you know, that interest rate is maybe preferable than sort of the margin lending uh, in this particular market environment. Although the interest rate in the treasury from the United States government may be even more attractive, but that's, I guess, a conversation for a different day. You talk about the fact that things are fragmented and you basically are just sort of connecting all of these blocks together, but nobody's really wholesale come up with these solutions. Does that mean that maybe the multi-chain narrative is wrong and that we should be focusing on a single chain and building everything there? Because it seems like when the chains start communicating is when we start to have the really big hacks and problems. Yeah, so I think there are people much smarter than me on, on or at least more technical, on, on this particular problem, right? Um, and the problem being, how does Ethereum function relative to Solana or Polygon or BNB in the long term, you know, are rollups going to be single chain or are rollups going to be multi-chain? So they anchor in a bunch of different chains, you know, and, and so on. Um, those are, I don't know the technical answers to those questions, but what I do know is the places where stuff breaks, right? So as, as you pointed out, the places where things break are bridges. Um, bridges are uh, an imperfect solution, and maybe maybe there are better technological answers that are functional functionally similar, like they do the same thing as bridges. Um, you know, and, I, and I've seen a bunch of protocols that claim to do that through messaging, you know, and layer zero and wormhole and so on. Um, so so maybe maybe that's the answer, but so far it feels like um, you're just introducing a lot of counterparty risk where the other, it's it's network counterparty risk and you can get stuck in one place or another um you know what it looks like to me just observing what's been going on with ethereum and with the way I've, i thought about like the proof of stake stuff is you know tezos was an early proof of stake blockchain and they ended up getting this like awesome nft community for being a green chain and um it was a real competitive advantage for them but now it's not because Ethereum has proof of stake, right? And so um, I think a lot of the features right now that we talk about are probably going to get integrated into, into Ethereum, right? So like Avalanche and its ability to have subnets or you know, uh, the super nets and the cosmos nets and like all, all the, like that architecture is really interesting. Let's call it sharding. Um, you know, is some version of that going to get built into Ethereum? Yeah, it will. And so there's kind of an arbitrage and the arbitrage is can the, can the other chains develop a, um, 
a market or an economic value proposition um, faster than Ethereum integrates the innovations of those chains into the largest market. Um, and, you know, I, I think both in both cases, it's, it's kind of a good outcome. Um, yeah, but is. that's the arbitrage. Yeah. Snapchat was really cool until Instagram just decided to make stories and be Snapchat and Vine was really cool until Snapchat came out. Right. There's nothing that and stops this, the incumbent or the larger platform from just adopting the popular features of another. Right. And we're, we're on clubhouse right now, right? This, this is live on Clubhouse. Yes, uh, Clubhouse is actually, I think, the most <laughs> popular platform in the world. Last I checked, it's right, math, right. science. I think. Yeah, yeah. it's um, we got to get those Clubhouse servers on U.S. soil. To be fair, I I mocked Clubhouse from the first day and was never an adopter, so I, I crushed it in my mind before Twitter Spaces even got there. Yeah, I, I'll um um I don't know why I'm having this like um law school PTSD right now, but, um, there's another just like absolutely amazing, uh, period in American history in, um, the late 1800s. And it all comes out in these court cases, uh, of accidents, torts. Um, and what was going on is that there were railroads being built all over the country and all the railroads were, they had different, ra different rails. So there weren't standard rail, you know, measurements. There were like, uh, railroad A was this wide and railroad B was wider or whatever. And, and so you had to, um, if you had a train that needed to transfer, like you would need to kind of gut the, the connectors or you'd need to switch them off onto, onto different things. And all of the switching was done by people. So there'd be a dude on one side of, of a train car and then another dude on the other side and they're moving, you know, and they, they have to like hook into each other. Um, and sometimes even hook under the train while it's moving. And so, um, these people were paid a little extra. It was, it was an attractive financial proposition because the whole thing was just a meat grinder, right? Like fingers, legs, arms flying in every which direction in between these trains as they smashed into each other. And therefore you have all these court cases about what are the railroads owe to their workers. And because, you know, in America, of course, nothing. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so I feel like right now we're losing the proverbial arm and a leg, you know, in the bridges, but there was a very literal version of this. Like there was, it was like people were literally getting mangled as this infrastructure was getting built. Um, fast forward 150 years, you know, you're not as worried about the trains, uh, being murder machines. Um, so I, you know, there's, there's, it's going to get figured out. Um, and it is going to be one network architecture, but in the meantime, like the work just has to be done. And I'm pretty encouraged by the fact that there is a lot of change. Yeah, the work is being done and I agree with the, the vision. So then the next natural question is once it's built, how do we get people to actually care and adopt it? Aren't they? Are they? They are. I don't know. Um, I, I don't, I don't have the numbers. <laughs> I'm assuming yes, but I would say that we probably have less users in DeFi than we did a year ago. I, that's my that's guess. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You, you definitely have, um, you know, so, um, MetaMask at the height of 2021, probably, uh, maybe early 22. I don't remember. I think we were at 30 million monthly active users and 
it was it was a really kind, it was a challenging number for me because um, I I come into this industry from the startup world and and fintech and so all my comps are fintech comps they're like how big is Robinhood how big is Chime or Revolut you know and in the fintech world like if you get to a million people as users you can you're like, you made it you're like you're on the charts you're a really good fintech company if you have 10 million people you're like the most valuable fintech company in the world right um and so when metamask boomed to 30 million people it would it would clearly my my paradigm to approaching it was wrong like this it was not a it was not a financial app it was not a robin hood for tokens right it was uh it was a way to use web3 it was a browser and it was a way to um it was the iphone but in a in a digital version right because it allows you to access this ecosystem and so the growth curves that i think about are no longer like how do we get to 25 or 10 million users that have this this much in assets the growth curves are you know the the facebook growth curve the the browser uh I was going to say the Internet Explorer growth curve. Yeah, that, that was at one point. Um, <laughs> so so that's, you know, 500 million people, billion people, right? Um, and we have that many accounts in Web3. So I think the, the total addresses across Web3 networks outside of outside of Solana are something like 500 million or 600 million addresses. So I think the the install base is there like we are ahead of virtual reality uh which has a 15 million 20 million vr headset install base right like we're um it, it's a big group of people that know crypto and have used it the problem is a lot of the people from this past cycle have had a bad experience so that is the challenge right like they're already Actually, there right. they have assets they're they know how to use a wallet they know how to sign a transaction they understand what permissionless or decentral just decentralization is permissionless innovation they get it um but the industry has to offer them a good experience and people aren't going to fall for a bad experience so you know if you're trying to build a bad experience for your own profit like you're wasting your time there's no point because your your install base can already figure out how to not not do that right so the stuff that is a little bit more weird right now is exciting to me so um the experiments around social media decentralized social media i think are interesting sure. um the experiments because the, exper around the experiment happening at twitter isn't going that well is maybe not for elon i think yes yeah, it's, it's uh not good. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. continue. Sorry. If you're a robot, it's going great. It's great. Amazing. Yep. Um, you know, so decentralized social media, but then also using some of the crypto network infrastructure for like in, inside of open source products. So I forget the name of the company, but like basically a Google office competitor, but hosted on um, IPFS. You know, so there's there there's also more about data and decentralized science and data sharing. So I think pushing at the edges of what the tools are for uh, is going to be really interesting because that's how you get people to say, "Oh, there's 
you know, there's something novel here um, that I want to try again. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm not discouraged. These, the markets come and go. Um, and I think the number of developers continues to, to be steady. And I think the number of people who are active hasn't fallen off that much, even though the, the, the valuations and the TVL and DeFi has gone down. Yes, all 12 of them are still here. I kid, I kid. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I, I think the sad reality is we need the number to go up, right? I mean, the, it's it's human. So once there's money to be made and the bull market is back, people will start trying these things and then we'll see an increase in adoption. So the tools just basically have to be built before price goes up and people get interested again. Maybe that's my sort of pessimistic view, but I think that's probably the case. Yeah, I think the fact that um, this industry is tied to price um, just makes it move much, much faster. Um, you know, so if like banks and if government moves at like 0 0.1 speed and then banks are like, oh, government's so slow, like we're going to move at one speed and then fintechs move at 10x, you know, and then crypto moves at 100x. Um, I think the fact that it is financial just means that it markets itself really well going up and then it markets itself very loudly going down. And so it's an acceleration, um, but it's not substantive. Like it's, it's not, um, like for, if you're marketing something, you need to market a product, you know, marketing your ability to market isn't, isn't going to get you far enough. Um, you know, and so it's like. Another example, another analogy would be like, you don't want to confuse, um, you, you don't confuse your iPhone with Apple stock. Like it's, it, you don't print out your Apple stock certificate and try to call people and press buttons on it. Um, and that is what a lot of people do in crypto. Um, they, they are, conf are deeply confused about what it is and what it's for. That's a really good point. Uh, that uh, extremely well put. So uh, I know we're up against time here. Are there any thoughts, any questions I should have asked? Anything that I might have missed that you want to share before I let you go? Um, yeah, the, I, you know, the, the other thing that I've been thinking about, and I'm sure you've covered it in your other conversations, is the macro economy and 2023 and kind of where we're at. Um, the other thing that drives people's participation in crypto is um, their ability to spend money, uh, their discretionary spending, consumer discretionary. So the correlation of consumer discretionary spending with like crypto usage and price is is quite strong. I do think that we're probably still in a place where we'll have unemployment increase and we'll have GDP slow and we'll have... Um, a recession in a bunch of the world. And then that has to be cleared out. And once that's cleared out, you need to start seeing positive growth and positive signs again. And then you'll, you'll start seeing people save, and then you'll actually have a pickup again in people, you know, being willing to buy digital objects and express themselves through, um, Web3 spending. So we've got to crunch through just like the reality of the world outside of crypto um, for things to turn around. And at least for me, like I, if some of this stuff is investment and some of this stuff is consumption, you know, and I think consumption won't 
pick back up until the rest of the world is is a little bit more healed. So that's frustrating, but at the same time, it means we don't have to crypto people don't have to blame themselves for the collapse of the world, right? Uh, it's it's not um, Vitalik didn't invade Ukraine or or sort of like engineer COVID. Um, I'm sure there's so people I, on Twitter who think he did though. That's is plenty of robots. Um, they're doing great. Twitter's great. Love it. Follow me at Lex Sokolin on Twitter. It'll be fantastic. I have it lots is. of robots. Yeah. Uh, well, I will say that the silver lining to what you just described in the macro is that there will actually be more time to build these tools and test them and make sure that they actually work before we have those millions of people flooding in and using them. So hopefully the next bull run will look a little different. Absolutely. All right, man. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Really one of my favorite guests. You're, you're very smart. I don't know if people have told you that, but uh, pretty, pretty smart. Very kind did you of actually you. go Thank to law school, by the way? Um, I, I, uh, I did go to law. I went to Columbia for a JD MBA. Uh, and so I was there for four years, smart. Um, smart. hiding out and borrowing good government money, uh, which I did pay back, but it was like TARP, uh, except with, with my personal life. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. We'll do this again soon. Fantastic. Take care. That's dope.